Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. On this episode, Chris Harvey returns, and he is coming back to explain his 15-year journey of perfecting the cantaloupe. Chris, uh, in his last podcast that we did together, there's a couple of episodes you go, you can go check it out. I really recommend it if you want to know more about him or if you're just interested in uh, just being um, excellent in a certain craft, because Chris certainly is that. Uh, but on this episode, we talk about this journey of him finding the cantaloupe, uh, something that is really important to him, and him traveling to France to try the supposed best one, and then him remembering that one and trying to recreate it for 15 years and trying to not only recreate what he had, but also remember and then make it better. Uh, and it's this journey of him mastering the cantaloupe that we go into uh, over the course of the next hour. And I just found it really fascinating. He brought it up in the interview and I wanted to know more because if anyone's going to dedicate 15 years of their life to something, uh, it, it probably is really important to them and they probably have a lot to tell about it. And so Chris goes into depth into what a cantaloupe is. Uh, he tells about, you know, his challenges of getting the perfect cantaloupe. And someone with more of a culinary focused background, I didn't know much about it. So if you're never really heard of it or you don't really know how it's made, this would be a great episode for you to listen to. And if you really love them, then this is obviously a great episode for you to listen to. But I just want to thank Chris so much for coming back on the podcast. It was really cool to get to share this story with y'all. And I hope we can do more of these uh, in-depth talks where we focus on a certain topic. But like I said, thank you so much, Chris, for coming on. I hope you all enjoy this podcast. Let's get into it. Hey, Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. I'm glad to be back. Awesome. Um, for the listeners who are you know listening right now, uh, basically, uh, in our last talk, our last podcast, you had brought up uh, the cantaloupe, and you were bringing up that it was something that was really special to you, something that you wanted to perfect, and it took you years to perfect. And I kind of wanted to have you back on to kind of tell that story, because I don't find many chefs who go in so deep on one recipe to perfect it. And I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah. You know, I, I, back in the nineties before the internet was as prevalent as it is, um, there really, there was no social media. Um, so you couldn't, you didn't really have exposure to the things that you see on Instagram or on Twitter or Facebook where people travel, they take a photo of themselves and whatever they're doing is immediately uploaded. So the whole world can see it. Um, that did not exist in the 1990s, even though the internet, uh, existed, it wasn't to that, to that level. Um, so, and I came out of a generation that still read books and magazines. So I started hearing about the Canelay and the official name is Canelay de Bordeaux. And there are two different spellings and I'll get into that in, in a little bit. So I first started hearing about the Canelay de Bordeaux making its way to Paris and, you know, it has a curious name. It says Canelay de Bordeaux, meaning it is, it, it translates exactly from fluted from Bordeaux. And Canelay is an old French word for fluted. This is why you see the flutes on the side. Um, okay. And, you know, I love this idea that it was uh, cooked in beeswax and copper. And it just had this great story. And nobody in America was making them. So... I was headed to France for the first time to go to pastry school uh, for, for, for further studies because I felt I needed it. I, was, I think I was 28 or 29 years old, and I felt I needed that jolt to my system. 
And um, one of the first things I did when I landed was I tracked down a cantalay. And Pierre Hermé, at this point of his career, had left Fauchon and he opened up a cafe with the group that owned La Durée. And he opened his own cafe on the Champs-Élysées, not far away from the original uh, La Durée. Uh, but this was like a Viennese style cafe, which you could get pastry and sit down and uh, have tea, coffee, quiche, and pastry like you can in Vienna. And it was just a beautiful cafe. So it had kind of a walk-in traditional French pastry on one side and a full-service cafe on the other, which is still unusual for Paris. Um, and I remember eating it, and I've only eaten one in my entire lifetime. Um, and I've eaten the same one twice. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit further down the line. But I remember eating it and thinking that if Pierre Hermé made it, that this is as good as it could be. You know, it had an even uh, color to the crust. It had an amazing contrast in flavors and textures. It was amazingly perfumed with vanilla and rum. And, you know, I'd never tasted anything like that. And then my research had told me that it was an ancestral recipe to Bordeaux. Um, and, you know, it may have been created by nuns. Bordeaux is a port city, uh, hence the vanilla and the rum influence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the French were traveling around the world, colonizing, um, you know, small territories in Africa and the Caribbean and throughout Asia. This is how they were getting a hold of vanilla and rum and getting it back into France. And, you know, Bordeaux being a port city, it was likely a city that imported all the cacao, all the vanilla and all the rum into, into Europe, or at least into France. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, that this is something I need to get into. I need to bring this to America. And, uh, you know, so I went to work on it. So when I was in France and I was on my way back to America, I bought uh, four copper molds. And I think they were like 35 US dollars each. So they're very, very expensive. Wow. And I, you know, found a recipe and I got to work on it. And it was all in French. And so I didn't have anybody to teach me how to mix it or how to really handle uh, the batter or how to even grease the mold or even how to season the mold. So I went to work on this thing. And thank goodness there was no social media back then because the first uh, examples of Candelay were just awful. You know, I didn't understand, you know, the smoke point of, of, uh, beeswax and how it cools very quickly and and, can, and and how it heats very quickly but it doesn't it doesn't smoke uh until you reach a very high temperature and i didn't really understand you know how to season the molds either or why that was important so that's primarily why it took me 15 years of my life to get it just where i wanted it to so luckily for me i have this sense memory that when i tasted pierre hermes in 1999 i knew what mine had to taste like ultimately I knew what kind of vanilla flavor it needed to have and what kind of rum flavor it needed to have. And I, and I understood what color it had to have on the outside. So, you know, I, I was baking a lot of these in two different kitchens. I was baking these in a home kitchen and in a, a professional kitchen. So I was getting like much different results along the way. But what I found was that the color that you want of the cantalay should be the color of the mold once it's properly seasoned and patinaed. So 
when you get the molds, they're they're bright, they're shiny, and they're copper color. But after you throw them in the oven, they start to change their color. And they're actually two different metals. So they're aluminum on the inside and copper on the outside. So they're going to react differently. Now, the original ones may have been all copper, but we don't know because the recipe is uh, at least three centuries old. Um, really? Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's an old recipe, you know. So it's, it's it, people ask me if I would ever mess with it, you know, if I would ever – uh, add like caramel to the topping or whipped cream or something like that. I would never do anything like that to it. I have so much respect for the amount of work I put into it. And the fact that it's an ancestral recipe that truly belongs to the people of Bordeaux, that it's to me, it's just good enough as it is. And, you know, I'm can you, uh, go ahead. Can you go into detail real quick? Just uh, for maybe someone who has never made one, what exactly the recipe is or what the components are that make up a cantaloupe? Well, surprisingly, the batter is a lot like crepe batter. So to put you through the entire process, the entire process of making the batter takes three days. So the first day you would warm the milk with a couple of split vanilla beans. And I found using Tahiti vanilla beans, which are a little bit sweeter, are best for this. And you would wrap that up and let it infuse overnight. And the next day you go into your your mix process, which is four stages. It's icing sugar, flour, eggs and egg yellows, and rum. And the first thing you do after you sift all the dry ingredients separately is you line them all up, okay? So you'd warm up the, the infused milk with salted butter. You'd mix that into the sifted powdered sugar thoroughly. And then you'd mix that into the sifted flour thoroughly without getting too rough with it because you don't want to activate the gluten too much or you'd risk getting a tough cantaloupe. And then your eggs and your egg yellows are room temperature. That's also very important too. So you kind of mix that up to blend them, but not too much. And then you mix uh, stage one, two, and three into stage four. And then you add the rum. And I found that Stroh rum from Austria, S-T-R-O-H, is the best rum to use for this. It's uh, 160 proof. So it's 80% alcohol. And it has a very... Uh, light vanilla and butter aroma and flavor profile to it. So it's really an amazing rum. You don't think about rum being made in Austria. You think about it being made in Puerto Rico or in Jamaica or, or one of the islands or Barbados or something like that. Um, but I found that rum to work the best. But you can use, you know, Meyer rum or uh, there's a great rum out of Puerto Rico. The name escapes me off the top of my head. Somebody gifted it to me last year. It really is quite amazing. Any of those would work as well. More, most importantly is maintaining the, the procedure of how you mix it. I've seen people mixing it with a burr mixer and I think that makes uh, disastrous. Uh, and I've even done that too. But what that does is it blends the gluten from the flour uh, too much and it activates it too much. So, so the batter looks differently on day two. So after you mix it, it has to sit another 24 hours before your next mix so that's day three. So the batter, after mm -hmm. you take it out of the fridge after day two, on its third day, you want to mix it in the container, then take all of it out of the container and mix it one more time in a bowl gently, and then strain any of the solids out. The solids being the vanilla bean fibers and any um, uh, albumin that may um, be stuck to the egg from the eggshell attached to it um, when you do the mixing and that kind of smooths out the batter. But the batter at this point is like crepe batter. So when you make crepe batter, it's not really of any use to you until it fully absorbs the flour 
um, uh, you know, the next day. So when you make crepe batter, you do it over a two day process, you mix it, but you don't use it mm-hmm. for the next day. And even then you have to kind of mix it up because the solids fall to the bottom. The same thing happens with the cantalay batter. So one of the practices that we got into at the SLS hotel when we were serving it was we would take the batter completely out of the container whenever we bake it and do a light mix of it instead of just putting a ladle in there and mixing it kind of half-assed with a ladle. So we did a thorough removal of the container it was in, let it come to room temperature before we baked it, and then did a light mix before it went in the oven. So we were very regimented about this, and that's why I think we had such a, a, a great cannelly. Okay. That's a lot. I mean, that's a pretty long process, <laughs> three days for um... – you know, for one item, why, so it sits because the flour needs to be absorbed. Yeah, the flour, the, the the water needs to be absorbed into the flour fully, or vice versa. Okay, and and well, that you is your too. that is your structure. And there really isn't that much flour in it, um, because like I said, the batter looks like crepe batter, but when you bake it in the copper molds, uh, it has like this texture of the outside of the ends of a baguette. You know, it should be crusty like a baguette. And this is why you can't use pan spray or whole butter. I know people do use it to lubricate the molds, but you should use beeswax. There's absolutely no water in beeswax. um, And it provides a really amazing lubricant to bake uh, the batter into. And it seals up the cannelay uh, so it's, uh, you know, crusty and crispy on the outside. But the contrast when you cut into it, it should be custardy and, and it should have kind of a flavor like a creme brulee. You know, when you have a, a creme brulee and you, you break through that sugar crust on the outside and you get to the vanilla perfumed custard on the inside, this is very similar uh, flavor to it, uh, a creme brulee. So um, I don't think, you know, I, I could, have ex- could have created this without going to France and tasting it from one of the masters who, who made it. I think that experience definitely helped me because I knew what I was looking for after that. And, and never seeing a cantaloupe Bordeaux before, um, you know, in this country, I, I never would have been able to make one uh, as well as I, I, I had. And maybe that's why I waited 15 years to ever sell one. I didn't think I was good enough to respect the tradition of the cantaloupe Bordeaux. And I definitely did not have the operation that allowed me to sell the cantaloupe Bordeaux until I got into the SLS hotel in Beverly Hills, where we had a full patisserie on display at the Bazaar by Jose Andreas. So the visual also helped. The story that I used to tell to the guest also helped. And we only did 12 a day uh, at the Bazaar because I wanted to increase the value of it. So, you know, I'm a big Ferrari lover. And I had this idea in my mind that if I did what Ferrari did, which was sell one less than the market demanded, I could get a a better price point for it, which I did. Uh, even Pierre Hermé only gets about three U.S. dollars for his um, cantalet de Bordeaux in France, and I was getting twelve U.S. dollars for the cantalet in Beverly Hills. And maybe it's because we're in a hotel and it was the Bazaar by Jose. I think if I was a freestanding shop, I couldn't charge that much. But the idea of just limiting the amount that we were going to sell really upped the value of it, and and that definitely worked. And I would sit out there and I'd tell our, our guests uh, at the restaurant about the history of the cantalet, including the two different spellings of the cantalet. And they were intrigued and nobody was ever disappointed. And one time we had a lady that came in from, from Bordeaux and she wouldn't eat it. 
And I asked her why not, and she said, "Because I'm from Bordeaux, and I and and you're an American, and you can't do it better than what we can do." And I said, "Ma'am, <laughs> Vermeer did not invent painting, but he mastered it. And I didn't invent the cantilever Bordeaux, but I, like Vermeer, have mastered this." And she changed her mind. She ordered one, and she came up to me a few minutes later, and she apologized, and she said, "You're right. Your, yours was incredible." So I felt wow. I got validation from a, a Bordeaux resident who are very sensitive about this pastry being owned uh, hmm. by uh, the residents of Bordeaux. That's awesome. That's very interesting, though, that they have so, so much pride in it. Uh, so, I mean, you, like you said, you, you literally went to France on this trip just to have a cannelé. I mean, not just to have a cannelé, but obviously that was your main goal. What else did you learn about like cantalays while you were over there in terms of like what you needed to do to be good at them? Well, you know, I just, after, I think after reading more about the history of it, I just felt, you know, and the two name spellings, which I guess I should explain. Um, I just felt that if I was going to take something that they felt such an affinity to, I had to make sure that everything I did with it was kept in the highest regard. So the best ingredients, the best handling, the best copper molds. There's like three different varieties of copper molds that are all made in France uh, on the market. One is made by Matt for Bourjat. That's the one I use. One is made by Mauviel. And one is made by another company. Their name escapes me. And they're three different sizes. So what, what had happened with the name spelling was... They didn't like the people of Bordeaux who created this recipe didn't like people like Pierre Hermé making them and selling them. And they didn't think they were authentic unless they came out of the hands of somebody from Bordeaux. And Pierre Hermé is from Alsace, which over the last hundred years or so has two or three times been part of Germany. So, you know, considering that his blood may have mixed with Germans, they especially don't like the fact that Pierre Hermé is making these for his, for his boutique. So <laughs> they instituted a few policies that would make them authentic. So for instance, the ancestral spelling of Canelet is C-A-N-N-E-L-E with an accent over the final E. Okay. They demanded that everybody outside of Bordeaux spell it C-A-N-N-E-L-E. And the new spelling for Canelet is C-A-N-E-L-E. That is something recent. So they've mandated that if you're from Bordeaux or you're in Bordeaux, you can use the new spelling as opposed to the old spelling to differentiate you from everybody else. And that means it's authentic. So it's similar to when straight croissants started popping up in France a few years ago. The idea of the straight croissant was when the French government allowed other fats to be mixed into croissant dough. It upset artisanal bakers so much that they formed their own society and said, we're no longer going to curve croissants. If croissants are curved, they may have other fats in them. So we're going to make all of our croissants straight. So now when you see a straight croissant, that explains why they're straight and no longer are they curved. Straight croissants are guaranteed to be all butter in France, whereas curved ones may be mixed with other fats. 
So not wanting to involve themselves with that, that's why they set those rules up with their croissants. And the people of Bordeaux did the same thing. So they changed the name. And they also mandated that it be baked in copper only, greased with beeswax only, and, and baked only in a 70-gram copper mold. So when you get the, the other molds, which are you know 35 and 50 grams, um, I believe they're 35 grams and 50 grams, that, that gives it an incorrect taste and texture contrast. So I've had and I've baked the smaller ones. They're not as sharply detailed and they're more crumb than they are crust. So it's kind of like how you would eat a full-size Reese's peanut butter cup versus eating the miniature one. They're <laughs> both good, but they're a different ratio of chocolate to peanut butter filling. And they don't really taste similar. And I, I find that to be true about the Canelita Bordeaux. So out of respect for that, I only bake Canelita Bordeaux at 70 grams using pure copper, pure beeswax. And um, I use the ancestral spelling and not the new spelling to differentiate myself from the people of Bordeaux. Wow. That's, so that is a lot that goes into it. Um, there, I always I, found it fascinating that like stuff, like, I mean, France, especially that they can have something so integral to a region that they protect it through naming and spelling and all that. Uh, was it intimidating for you to get into it, get involved in all of this, knowing how special it was to them and how unwilling they are to almost let anyone from the outside in? Yeah, it was, especially if you had seen the first 14 years of my cannelais, you know, I, I feel bad for, all the people that ate them over that 14 year period. And a lot of them were really, really good, but compared to how I know how to make them now, um, I wish I could go back and do them all over again. But um, yeah, you know, I, I, I definitely had a lot of frustrating and embarrassing moments uh, early on uh, baking them and not knowing how to mix it correctly or not knowing how to dose the, the, uh, the batter correctly. Cause there are no rules. I mean, there's nobody saying, you know, deposit 70 grams of batter inside this mold and use only this mold. These are things I found out along the way uh, doing my mm -hmm. research to them. So, yeah, the first ones were, were colossal failures. But, you know, but it did teach me a lot about pastry in general that, you know, you got to keep trying. Um, it's something we can improve on. And it's just things, you know, conversations you and I had before and that I have with all my employees and all the people I keep in my inner circle that it, it, it you shouldn't get down and depressed and feel like a failure. You just have to know that, you know, your first try, you're, you're never going to get it right. And I think that you just have to keep turning over the cards and seeing how much better you can make it. Now, I, I can tell you that I would not try another recipe to this day. It is one of the few recipes that I feel that I've mastered it. I would never do anything to it to, to change it. I wouldn't add coffee to it. I wouldn't add orange blossom water to it. I wouldn't put, you know, caramel or cremeux on top of it after it's baked. I, I do see a lot of people on Instagram doing this, and I think that is a, a poor reflection of the, uh, of the tradition of the cannelay. I think you should just serve it as is. I think it's one of those things that, you know, it's just good as it is. It, there's no reason to change it. Yeah. That's interesting. So, like, will people like people will top it, or they'll try to infuse different flavors into it. Um, that se it seems a little odd too, because from my point of view, from what you've been telling me, it seems like a very technical uh, piece of food to make, and like you, I feel like that might hide all the hard work if you were to top it with something. 
or put a different flavor in. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like um, when you see a beautiful car that somebody does. And I just saw this today. Someone just sent me a photo, a chef friend of mine of a McLaren that the guy wrecked, and it's on a flatbed and it's driving up the freeway. I mean, that's a beautiful car. You know, you don't have to. You can just take it from the factory and do nothing to it, and you'll have the best car in any city that you live in. And there's no reason to do anything else to that car. Just leave it as is. You know, it's already perfected coming out of the factory. And I think if you're going to make perfect cantaloupe, why put all that makeup over it? Why put whipped cream on it? Why put chocolate sauce on it? Why do something other than eat it as it was intended to do? You know, I mean, I, I don't feel that way about anything else. I don't feel that way about ice cream or a croissant. I think if you can make a matcha croissant, go ahead. If you can make you know, a pistachio croissant, or, you know, there's this guy in New York called Supermoon. He does all these crazy croissants. They're incredible. I love the innovation that this guy has with croissants, you know, and, and you know, he's, French people may have an issue with it because they love the tradition uh, of, of their food so much, but this is why they have such a problem getting out of their tradition so much, uh, too. You know, it's one of those things where they have a problem kind of stepping outside of their tradition because they're so they're so moribund in their in their tradition. So we don't really have that as much here in America, but I still feel like we should respect um, a lot of the things that we've learned over the years from them. It's one of the things I love about French pastry is how, how they are amazing technicians. They're not great tastemakers, so to speak, but they are great technicians when it comes to creating something and maintaining that. So, um, you know, eat, I see a lot of people, new pastry chefs in France, opening new pastry shops in Paris, and they're uh, doing some really creative stuff with traditional French pastries like Mont Blanc and Eclairs um, and macarons, but they're really not stepping that far outside to what their audience will eat. And their audience that would eat cannelé definitely would not take them covered with whipped cream and uh, <laughs> chocolate sauce and caramel sauce and that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. It's a poor representation uh, in this country too. Yeah, that's cool. And so, walk walk me through kind of the process it took to like. How did you know your like? How do you know right now that your cannelé is where you want it to be? Like, what was that point like? How did you get to that discovery that all right, I'm at the point where the cannelé should be in terms of taste, color, texture, contrast. Well, I I, I had to go back to France. Uh, 16 years later to try the same one I tried. And I, I felt, I, and I still feel like I have a really good sense memory for taste. Like I don't need to taste something over and over again to kind of replicate it. So, um, you know, I, I just felt in my, in my sense memory, I was there about 2015. So that was about 15 years, uh, after I tasted my very first one. Um, and I, I went back to France um, a few months after I put it on the menu at the Bazaar by Jose Andreas. And um, I came back from, from Paris and I met with the key players on my team. And I said, well, here's what I feel we, where we're at. I feel like our chocolate needs to get better. And we had a bonbon line and a tablet line. And I felt like it was okay, but after tasting Patrick Roger's and, um, you know, uh, some of the other great brands in, in Brussels and Paris, I felt we needed to, to really get better there. And I felt 
we were just as good at at certain things that we were already doing, like tarts and mousses that were selling in the patisserie by uh, by Jose Andres. And then I felt there were things that we were superior at than what I was tasting in France. And I went to France with my cousin, uh, who was working in Germany at the time. Uh, he's a defense contractor. He met me for the weekend. And uh, we both tried Pierre Hermes and Lauderay's. We went to both places. Uh, and uh, we felt that uh, mine was um, of a better texture. The flavor was very similar in vanilla and caramelization of the crust. And uh, that's also very important, uh, by the way. They, they say in Bordeaux, the bun isn't done until it's black. It sounds a little bit better in French, but it, it ultimately <laughs> it translates to the bun isn't done until it's black. So they want a very dark uh, crust on it. But like I said, if you have a nice patina on your um, mold, when you unmold the cantalet uh, after about an hour of baking, it should be uniformly colored. It should look like exactly like the outside of the mold with the nice uniformed, uh, uniform color to it. Uh, but anyway, so going back to what I was saying, tasting Pierre Hermes and, and uh, La Durée's, I realized that my taste and sense memory was correct. What I, what I tasted to what I replicated was indeed correct. Uh, I did uh, taste um, correctly and I did replicate what I was looking for correctly too. But I really needed to validate that. And that's why I went back to go taste what I tasted 16 years previous to it. Okay. And, you know, with tasting that, like, so when you taste that and realize yours is better, did you, or that you thought, you think that yours is better. And so, like, you essentially have come to the end of your, I guess, journey of, you know, making a really, really great cantalay. Um how did that feel when you came to that realization? Were you upset that the journey was kind of over? Were you excited for how much more you like you could work on it, or like, well, like, are you still I, I was testing it now? Or? Things I was excited that I could honestly tell people that I felt that this is something that I did better than anybody, and I wouldn't say that about anything else I made. You know, I make you know good macarons. I make really good salted butter caramels. I, I put a big journey into making the salted butter caramels too. You know, but. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I always feel like I need to improve on something, you know, and, and get better at my craft. So I'm always looking to get better at it. Um, but I did feel like, um, you know, I felt excited that I had accomplished what I set out to accomplish. I wish I had done it in less time than 15 years. Uh, maybe I'm not so good of a pastry chef after all, if it took me 15 years to replicate. But it showed that I have a tremendous amount of patience uh, to what I do. Um, and I'm not willing to sell it unless I feel it's 100% where I want it. And I'm glad I had the audience to sell it to as well. I don't think I ever had that audience before. And they were really kind of captive, you know, because it was the only restaurant in America where you would have your savory food on one side of the restaurant then actually get up and physically move you to a dessert-only room where you have to walk up and interact with the staff. And a lot of times that was me. And a lot of people never believed that I was a pastry chef with a bazaar. They thought that I had to be some French guy or I'd be fat or I'd have a mustache or wear a tall hat. I'm not sure what they, they were always surprised when, when I, when, when they were introduced to me 
and uh, you know some skinny American guy uh, was the pastry chef of that place, and that I made such uh, uh, pretty uh, and delicate pastries. Um, not sure who they thought they were meeting, but uh, it was always a funny response, you know. But um, but yeah, I felt like uh, I had accomplished what I what I set out to, and I was excited to uh, share that. But I also used that lesson in patience and in in other things that I do. And I use that lesson to tell other cooks that it's okay. You're not going to get it right off the bat. There, nobody gets it off the bat. There's not a cook that comes into any kitchen that gets it off the bat. And, you know, I used to be of the attitude that, you know, if I made it correctly the first time and it looked okay, then it must be okay. And what I realized was is that it, it can constantly use touch-ups. I can constantly touch up my own work. And I used my experience with the Canelay to update a small cake that we did at the Bazaar by Jose Andreas that was a number one seller that people kept saying to me, don't change it. Why would you change it? <laughs> and, and I said, you know what? I, I think I can do better. I just think I can. And there was this thing that we called the vanilla pillow. And it was a vanilla mousse, a very light vanilla mousse. And I got these beautiful Tahiti vanilla beans uh, from this guy in Hawaii. And he was getting them out of, uh, out of Tahiti. And uh, they were like $425 a kilo. They were super expensive. They're much more money now, much more expensive now. And it had a caramel creme brulee on the inside. So it was kind of like a custard in a mousse. And it had like this beautiful speculoos, crunchy speculoos layer on bottom that I made from speculoos paste, hazelnut paste, ground speculoos. And then what we'd do is we'd frame it, freeze it, and cut it. And we'd build the small cake upside down. So instead of like a daquoise or a genoise or something, we put this speculoos on bottom, I think three millimeters deep. And uh, it was a number one seller. And I said, I think I can do better. So I created a liquid caramel insert made of, you know, glucose, cream, caramelized sugar, salted butter, fleur de sel, and, and a little bit of gelatin to kind of hold it into place. But I needed a special freezer in order to make this happen. So my boss bought me a $45,000 coma, <laughs> which is a freezer out of uh, the Netherlands. And it's an amazing freezer. And so it got us uh, to uh, 30 below zero uh, in order to pop out these caramel inserts. We couldn't have done it without this freezer because caramel won't wow. freeze. Uh, at zero degrees. It has to be much, much colder. So we froze it in the small inserts, got it 30 below zero, and we would pop out the inserts and then drop it in the mousse. So once it was defrosted uh, the and served at um, 38 degrees or 39 degrees Fahrenheit, like refrigerator temperature, uh, the caramel insert was liquid, but protected by the mousse surrounding it. So once the mm. guests broke into it, it had this beautiful oozy layer of caramel, which was a much better texture than the original version, version, which was uh, um, another custard inside a mousse. So it was a much better texture. And I remember, you know, having fans of, of, of this mousse cake saying, why would you change it? It's perfect as it is. And I said, trust me, you just have got to trust me. Because they would come <laughs> in two or three times a week just to have this dessert. They would skip eating tapas on the savory side and just to have this mousse cake and people would buy it and take it home with them. And uh, they were the ones when I announced that I was changing it that were all angry at me. And I said, you've got to trust me on this. So 
I know there are chefs like Wolfgang Puck that can never change the tuna tartare cone or the smoked salmon pizza. People would freak out. They would stop coming to Spago and they would get angry at him if he did it. But I wasn't nearly as popular as Wolfgang Puck and nobody knew who I was. So I felt I could, I could do it. Um, I could change it and make it into a better item. And I, and I would redo, I would do this cake again. If I had a new job tomorrow and needed to impress somebody, I would bring this cake out of uh, the archives and do it again because it was that good. It was worth it. But that's what it taught me. It taught me working on that cantaloupe, trying new vanilla, new rum, new mix methods, you know, new, new maturing of the new methods of maturing of the batter, um, you know, new bake temperature, new dosage amount in the mold. I would do, that's what taught me it's okay to keep working on, on your, your products, no matter how good you think they are. And so you get them to the point where you find them to be 100% perfect. Okay. What, uh, it's interesting. You, you brought up Wolfgang Puck with, uh, like his signature dishes. And obviously this would be a signature dish of yours or something that's significant to you as a chef. Uh, is it like, you know, there will probably be someone who eats your cantaloupe and says, I want to make it as good or if not better than Chris Harvey, like, do you think that is possible? Like, do you how oh, yeah, how much absolutely. better can absolutely. it be? No, I tell people that had I had uh, the information uh, that I know now, I probably could have got that done in five months instead of fifteen years. So, yeah, I think a lot of the things that I found out about it, the ones that I've shared with my cooks, they'll be able to make perfect ones right off the bat without ever putting any research into it. But I think with as many articles that I've participated in about the cantaloupe, especially over the last three years, um, I think people will now do it uh, in a much in a much quicker fashion. Somebody messaged me last night and said, I bought cantaloupe molds and I'm getting ready to start my first project with them. I'm, I, so I said to him, good luck. And I, I was reflecting uh, how long it took me just to get the mold seasoned, you know? Uh, and then somebody else messaged me uh, a week ago um, I'm not sure where this person works at. You know, I have so many people messaging me. Um, that, and he said, uh, he said, you know, you were the reason why I bought the cantaloupe molds and I'm getting ready to make my very first ones. And he tagged me on his first photos. Now, they weren't very good, I got to tell you. Uh, they're about one-third the size they should be. But, you know, it's his first attempt. So mm -hmm. he needs to keep working on it to get him to look like mine. And, uh, you know, if you put in the hashtag word cantaloupe Bordeaux on Instagram, you're going to find a whole lot of shitty examples of, of people making attempts at them. But I think they should look at the ones that the masters have created and uh, compare them theirs, that, they, that they are making to those of the masters. And, and that should be uh, their benchmark for it. So, yeah, they can do it in a lot shorter. Now, there's more information on the Internet now. And you see people in America making them. You know, Dominique Ansel makes them. I've had his, and I think they're really good. There's somebody in Chicago that's kind of, that's really mastered them. Um, I'm not sure what the person's name is, but it's called a reset in Chicago, R-E-C-E-T-T-E. -E -E. And, um, you know, you're it out. more and more pop up uh, in, the, in the larger cities around the country. And uh, people are doing a really good job of them. So when you look, so I'm looking at a picture of yours right now, and I'm actually in the hashtag now. So that inside like structure, how should it look? Should it look dense? Should it look? Well, you like, should have, have that webbing. 
for sure. It should have the webbing. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And if it's, I see when people cut them in half and it's the, it's, it's too close. It means they're underbaked or they're, or sometimes they're baked too quickly when it's too far apart. So if they're rising out of the, out of the mold and people tell me that they're rising out of the mold, that means that their oven isn't hot enough or they have too much wax in the mold because the wax is actually boiling and pushing the batter up and out. Okay. So that's one thing to, 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 to look at. You only need a very thin film of wax um, in the bottom of the molds, you know, and you definitely should not use uh, silicone. You should never use silicone. Silicone bakes terribly. It, it sweats and it doesn't attract the same heat that copper uh, does. So only use the copper molds and only use the matte for ones because those ones have um, sharp edges on them. And, it, and the sharp edges actually create a lot of the texture, believe it or not, you know, to have sharp fluting on the outside. That's, that's a part of the textural experience of the cantilated Bordeaux. Um, and then, uh, uh, but you should have that custardy um, uh, interior. It shouldn't be uh, liquid. It should be moist. You know, it should kind of have um, kind of like a, um, you know, kind of like a croissant type um, cross cut to it, like honeycomb webbing to it. And like I said, that's what makes the, the batter so magical because it looks like crepe batter. But when you bite into it, it feels like a baguette. You know, when you, when you start eating it, it eats like a baguette, you know, and it mm-hmm. has this amazing contrast of caramelization and vanilla and rum. And then this mystery aroma shooting through your sinuses and it's unidentifiable to almost every human being on the planet because they've never tasted beeswax. They've never tasted mm-hmm. beeswax. And beeswax in its natural state has its own aroma to it. I, 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 it's not floral. It's just, it's just outdoorsy. It smells of a meadow. You know, it smells of fresh air. And it's just really an incredible aroma. It's, it's hard to describe. Yeah, I was going to ask you why why beeswax? Like, what was the significance with it? I mean, I, I was wondering what the taste was like, but, you know, I, I, I honestly didn't know beeswax was that important of a part in it. So I don't know if I, if I when I've eaten in a cannoli, if I've ever actually noticed it or even looked for it, or if it even was in the cannoli I was eating. So I haven't had that many. So what what is the significance behind it besides, obviously? I, I, don't, I don't know the ancestral history of the significance of using beeswax. All I know is that originally it was made with beeswax. So, for, you know, for me, I'm going to respect the tradition and use beeswax. Now, when you use clarified butter, it bakes fine. There's, there's no question it bakes fine. There's no water in clarified butter, just like there's no water in beeswax. But I just love the idea of using the beeswax now because it adds aroma to it and it's also a great conversational piece to have with your clients and it almost stimulates a purchase right there they almost want to buy it right there because it's made with beeswax and what (laughs) things are cooked with beeswax there's nothing cooked with beeswax you know they they make candles out of beeswax they lubricate zippers and 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 uh, machine parts with beeswax because it's so it's so sturdy and takes such hot temperatures for it to get it to melt you know, so, um, and it's obviously waterproof too. So, um, I think the, the, the best part of the beeswax right now is the aroma 
and the and the uh, and the uh, eventually the taste of it. So when I tell people to buy beeswax, and I was just telling somebody yesterday about this, we got into this conversation about Canalay. Guy was retired, Los Angeles County fireman, and I I, I was at the mat for warehouse sale in Van Nuys yesterday afternoon and he was picking up a bunch of things and and he had recognized me uh from uh the internet or something like that and he asked me about about using beeswax and I said if you use beeswax do not use the art supply store beeswax go find a bee farmer and ask him to sell you his beeswax because his beeswax will not be deodorized the stuff that they sell in um our supply in craft stores is meant for the for the hobbyist, the person who's making beeswax candles. Uh, they're going to add essential oils to it, so they need it to be deodorized. Uh, you want to get the beeswax that comes right from the bee farmer. So there's this young man up in Carmel, California. His name is Jake. He's a uh, I think he's like 17 years old now, but he started the Carmel Honey Company when he was in his early teens and maybe even before that as kind of like a wow. school project to kind of save the bees. And he's got this great qualifier qualifier to his company. It says on his, on his, um, on his, uh, you know, his like brochures and his flyers, it says, if we die, we're taking you with us. And his <laughs> whole idea is bee preservation. So he's in a very, uh, he's in a, he's in a great area up there off the coast in, in Carmel, California where he has a whole lot of bees just kind of flying uh, and picking off, uh, you know, um, they're either, uh, you know, multi-flower uh, honey that he grows or, or whatever else he's collecting that's specific to a certain strain of flower or plant. And um, uh, he sells me his beeswax. And when I get it, it's all in all these funky colors, you know, it's kind of, um, kind of a tan color. And sometimes you see some bee legs and some bee wings in there and things like that. They're not going to harm you. Just pick them out with tweezers after you melt it. And um, so what we do is we get the, the molds hot first and uh, either with a blowtorch or by throwing them in the oven and the beeswax is also hot and you can kind of melt that in the oven too. And then we fill up the mold completely and then we tip it over and tap out any excess beeswax. So it's just kind of thinly greased. And then we let the molds cool before we drop in the batter. And once the, once the batter gets dropped into the mold, then it immediately goes into the uh, oven where it's baked until it's done. And depending on the oven, it can be anywhere from 45 to 60 minutes to get it baked completely. And what temperature would you be going at? I think at the hotel, because we used the rationale oven, we did them at 160 centigrade, which is about uh, three... 30 or 332, I believe Fahrenheit for about 45 minutes. And I, my, my nose was so in tune to this that I didn't have to look at the timer when I knew they were approaching the finish line. I would just, when I was smelling like that sweet beeswax aroma coming out of the oven, that was kind of mixing with the caramelization of the outside of the cannelay that I knew they were getting close to finish. They were, they were within five minutes of being done. Uh, when my, my nose was tuned perfectly to the aroma that I was looking for. So uh, I, I found that the oven that I acquired, that I bought when I moved down here to Ann Sons, um, I have to do them at a higher temperature. I have to do them closer to about 175 centigrade. Okay. I also do a chocolate version, by the way, which uh, at, at first I was not in love with, 
but I have fallen in love with in, in more recent time. And what is that like? You know, the recipe is very similar, but, you know, just adding a 62%, I'm sorry, it's a 61% chocolate to it, uh, just kind of adds a twist on it, a classic uh, version. And, you know, we're an all chocolate store anyway, and we don't sell them yet, but we're thinking about selling them here soon. I just thought if we're going to do all chocolate here at this store, that having a chocolate version would be would be good to have. So I added 61% uh, uh, chocolate Velrona to it and some Velrona cocoa powder to add a little bit of richness to it. And, uh, and it's great with the beeswax. And it's a great version. And it's not too far removed. It's not a huge departure from the classic version uh, either. Uh, of course, that'll always be near and dear to my heart, but it's nice to have the chocolate version as well. Okay. Awesome. And so what is the, what's the shelf life on a cannoli? Like, are you supposed to eat them right away or how long? Uh, good question, Ray. That's a good question. <laughs> I, I, I made sure that if we ever sold any to go, I made the client promise they would eat them before the night was over. So if they were taking them home, they weren't going to wait until the next morning to eat them at breakfast time with their coffee. Uh, they only have a shelf life. We, we bake them between uh, 5 o'clock and 6 p.m. every night. Um, and we did that because we figured they only had a shelf life of about five or six hours. So wow. instead of baking them at 3 o'clock and then waiting them sit around and, until like 7.30 to start selling them, we, we baked them up until 6 p.m. is when they came out of the oven. So we felt like the humidity from the inside affected the outside crust, the humidity being the crumb. So similar to a baguette, you know, when, when I was a bread baker, we always baked the baguettes overnight because they had a shorter shelf life, you know, by the time, you know, the client eats the baguette, um, it's like breakfast time, you know, so the baguettes yeah. start going in the oven at 1am, 2am, you would leave your, your home um, in the morning uh, to get your breakfast baguette um, at, you know, 6am, 7am. That's the freshest the baguette's ever going to be. It's not going to be very fresh at 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. So the bread bakers in France always bake those uh, last because that's the first thing you're going to eat in the morning. You're not eating it on a sandwich. You're not eating it with your salad. You're eating it for breakfast. So it has to be the freshest it's going to be. So you bake those last. So, um, you know, luckily our ovens were free at that time. And everybody knew that there was nothing going in the oven. Uh, at that time, but Canelay wasn't going to share the oven with anything else. We weren't going to open the the door over and over and over again to bake twills or something that was only a seven minute bake. When we put those in the oven at 5 p.m., that door never opened until they were ready to come out. So that was reserved between 5 and 6 p.m. So it was the last thing that that cook who was assigned to prepare um, the um, preparations for the bizarre was assigned to do. That was his final assignment for the day. Okay. Is there, would there ever be a way of extending the shelf life? You know, I see people, someone sells them frozen at Trader Joe's. Uh, please, whoever's listening to this, never eat those. That is a terrible <laughs> representation of what a cantalay should be. They should never look like that. They should never be uneven in color. And I can tell you when they're baked in silicone and those ones are baked in silicone. Really? Yeah. It's the shape. The shape gives it away. Has that huge cavity uh, in the middle 
and uh, it, it, you know, of the top, which is the bottom when you're baking it, and uh, they should never look like that. I, I'm, I hope the guy is making a lot of money off it because that is the only, even that wouldn't make me feel good. Um, it wouldn't make me feel good getting a huge payday for making crappy candlelight. I'd rather give up my entire career than ever uh, do anything that I feel is unethical to the candlelight. Okay. I'll retire. Awesome. I promise you I would. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, great. Uh, what else should uh, people know about the cantalay? I think if you if you find a great one, go and try other people's, you know, and just see who who makes a lesser one and who makes a better one. And, and, and really, uh, maybe it was unfair of me just to taste one, but, you know, and then going to work to create my own. But, you know, I felt that Pierre Hermé was and is still the standard bearer of all pastry in Paris. And I'm not... That, that's not to, to lessen great, great pastry chefs like Philippe Contaccini and people like that, who I have amazing amounts of respect for. But, you know, I just felt like I was being handed one that was, was made by a master. Um, so, you know, he, to me, was the standard bearer of, of where the cantalet should be. And um, I think, you know, that was the only one I needed to taste. But... Um, I've tasted a few since then, uh, including a couple here in Los Angeles, um, including Dominique Ansel's. And I tasted Dominique's last year after he opened, and he didn't even use vanilla bean in his. And I know vanilla is expensive, but who cares? You're talking about the cantalated Bordeaux. Spend the effing money on the goddamn vanilla bean. Use it. That's what it's put there for. Skip <laughs> it everywhere else. You can use vanilla paste in your ice cream if you need be and vanilla paste in some of your other batters, but do not skip vanilla bean. And it wasn't even vanilla paste. There was not a, there was not one vanilla seed in the cantalet that I tasted at Dominique Ansel. And it was disappointing. Really? The texture was good. The size was perfect. The color was perfect, but it was disappointing to not taste vanilla in it. Hmm. That's interesting. Wow. Okay, well... I mean, I'm definitely going to have to start tasting some as I have very limited background on it. I'll definitely have to check that place out in Chicago. Um, and and yeah. start traveling to taste it too, Ray. You know, I mean, I that's will. what I did. I mean, I felt it was important to travel to France just to taste it, you know, and and uh, to travel to Bordeaux to taste that. Just like, you know, you wouldn't understand um, some of the Alsatian desserts um, or some of the desserts out of Normandy, unless you traveled there, you know, or, or, you know, you see a lot of, uh, um, you know, things that migrate to America, like they do a specific tart in Saint-Tropez that you don't see in Alsace, you know, um, mm -hmm. that, that's just kind of exclusive to Saint-Tropez. And you see those in America now, too. You see different versions of them. Um, it doesn't mean that they're bad or lesser or different, but they're just, they're just, they just are what they are. But I think it's important to travel to taste other people's food. And, you know, I was just talking to the chef from uh, Delat Rose, which is a new Vietnamese restaurant opening above Crustacean in Beverly Hills. And he was telling me that he traveled all over Vietnam to really understand the culture of Vietnamese food. And this is somebody who grew up in a Vietnamese household. He felt oh. it was necessary for him to travel from Northern Vietnam to southern Vietnam to taste all the regional specialties, to really understand 
the culture of Vietnamese food. And considering he grew up in a Vietnamese household and has worked with uh, Helene An for seven years uh, at Crustacean before he got the opportunity to be the chef de cuisine of this new restaurant, is really saying something. It's an attitude that we should all take uh, in our travel to be uh, chefs. Okay. What, um, and so, like, focusing more on that, thinking about authenticity, like, so for you, for, like, for the Canale, it's obviously something that's very specific to one region. How do you, how do you make it, because you've made an amazing Canale, and it's authentic, and it's true to what a Canale should be, but like you said, you're from America, you're not from that region. How do you keep authenticity while moving it away from maybe where it was originated from? Well, with other, other products, I mean, we see that, you know, we don't have the rules that they have in France. We don't, we don't, we don't follow the repertoire of cuisine, so we can do what we want. We don't have any, uh, any tradition of cuisine in this country. There are very few regional things uh, to America. Even foods that we think are American have come here from other countries, like peanuts and okra. You know, you see peanuts and okra throughout the southern part of this country, and they eat them differently than, you know, like they eat peanuts boiled down in like Georgia and Florida. Um, and uh, that's something you would never see here in California. And we grow peanuts here in California and not to the capacity that they do in, uh, in Georgia and Florida, but nonetheless, we grow them out here. Um, but those foods came from Africa. They came over here when the slaves came over here uh, with the original settlers of this country. Um, so we don't really have that history. So we can kind of do whatever we want to do to the food here in America. Uh, and things that they would never dream of doing in France and in Spain. Um, and I think that's one of the things I really loved about Spain was, uh, in particular, the Costa Brava, you know, Barcelona and that area that are, that are made up mostly of Catalonians, where they still have a great amount of respect towards the tradition of their food, but they also feel like they can evolve with it as well, which they can't really do in France, but we can do it here in America. This is why you would never see, you know, the things that we do with French food in this country, you would never see being done over there. So, um, you know, I think we're a little bit more creative with some of the foods that that we've learned from the French, like the croissants and the macarons and the cannelés. So, you know, we don't have any rules that kind of tie our hands to this like they do over there. We don't have to worry about offending a society of people like uh, they would be afraid to do. So you don't see great departures being taken from what they do over there, but we can do it over here. But it's just my personal choice because I worked with French people early in my career. I went to school in France and, and learned from them. I really admire their discipline to how they do things, but um, I, I, don't, I don't feel um, any animosity towards anybody that wants to change French food here in America to do it, to make it appeal towards Americans. You know, there's there's regional food from France, Italy, and Spain that would never fly here in America. For, I mean, for instance, if you tried serving that cheese that's covered with maggots from Sardinia to an American, they'd freak out on you. But to a Sardinian, that's a that's a regional specialty. You know, yeah. my grandfather, uh, his family came here from Italy. They ate head cheese. That's not you wouldn't find head cheese in any kind of deli or any kind of supermarket nowadays. So. We don't really have that tradition here. That's kind of gone. You know, we kind of have Southwestern food. Um, they kind of do some things in, in Texas that are a little bit differently. 
uh, as far as Tex-Mex than you would find in California Mexican food. Um, but in, in, in all in all, we don't have a great tradition of food in this country, and it's definitely improved in the last 30 years. But American chefs can do what they want. They can do what they want. And even, even Wolfgang Puck, you know, I heard him say recently, he did a podcast um, recently with a, with a podcast here in L.A., and, uh, you know, he made what he calls the Jewish pizza, which is uh, a pizza with uh, creme fraiche, smoked, um, smoked salmon, and caviar on top. And how weird that was the pizza traditionalist, but he's not a pizza traditionalist. That's not what he does. You know, he said, he says, I'm never going to make a pepperoni pizza. The closest you'll ever get me to making a pepperoni pizza is I'm going to put duck sausage on pizza. How about that? I invented duck pizza. Therefore, I invented the duck pizza, duck sausage pizza. And that's the closest you're going to get the pepperoni. And I'm going to make it and you're going to eat it, like it or not. So he sets his own rules. So this is a guy who was an Austrian that immigrated to America. So the fact that he immigrated and he, and he takes the same sensibility as an American chef, chef makes him a smart chef because the clients are paying the bills ultimately. So they'll dictate a lot to you uh, what your cuisine is going to be. And you should listen to them to an extent. Okay, cool. And like talking about that, are you, like you said, you changed that one dessert that many people loved. When do you think it goes too far in terms of a chef, like, tearing everything down and rebuilding it and then ultimately failing? Like, do you think that's possible or do you think that you just have to be true to what you want to do and then the rest will follow? I I think, you know, as an example, when we came out with our first chocolate box for sale online, I didn't really take a lot of risks. I I figured this is already chocolate. People already want to pay me to make it. So why should I make it challenging? Why should I put lavender in it? Why should I put, you know, rose hips in it and cilantro there's, there's no reason to challenge people. They're already willing to take their credit card out of their wallet and swipe it at, at the store. So why be difficult? Why make it difficult for them to, to buy it, you know? Um, and, you know, I, and I also learned that if you cook with your ego, you're not going to have customers for very long, you know? I just went somewhere recently where I had a dish that had a very strong cheese from Bordeaux called uh, Iposé on it. And the chef served at tableside, warm and melted over these like sauteed sunchokes. And it was terrible. It was one of the worst things I've ever tasted. That, that cheese it was meant to be balanced with uh, fruit and wine and nuts and things like that. It wasn't meant to be served with like sunchoke. It was disgusting, quite frankly. And I would never go back there ever again. And sooner or later, that chef, will, if he continues to cook with his ego, will not be for long in this city because people will just stop showing up. And I, th- I think conversely, if you listen too much to um, your clients, you'll, you'll be so schizophrenic, you won't have any core business. So I, I, just take McDonald's, for example. They're still going to be about burgers and fries, no matter what you feel about McDonald's. There's still burgers and fries around the globe. And then in different parts of the globe, they have different items because they have different clients. So you'd go to Hawaii in the Philippines and you would find spam fried rice because that's part of the tradition of being in the Pacific Islands is, is spam fried rice. You would never see it here in Los Angeles. No matter how great the population of Filipinos are here to L.A., you would never see McDonald's put spam fried rice. They're still going to be about burgers, fries and shakes here in the United States. So. Uh, no matter how much I may want it, um, 
they're just not going to bow down uh, to me. So um, I feel like you still have to be true to yourself, still do what you want to do, but, you know, maintain that if something isn't selling, don't just keep trying to push it because it ultimately could, could bring down your entire, your entire franchise, your entire, uh, um, you know, business, you know, so listen to the clients, but be finely balanced and tuned into what they're saying. You know, are, 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 is what they're saying to you legitimate? You know what I mean? Just because they have an allergy to it doesn't mean everybody has an allergy to it. Or just because they have a dislike to it doesn't mean that everybody has dislike to it. And in fact, the store manager said to me recently that a couple clients have uh, asked to bring back something that I discontinued three or four months ago. And this is the first I've heard of it. So I, I, th- I said to, back to her, I said, well, the idea that we're just now hearing back that they miss it d- tells me that we we're right to take it off the menu <laughs> because the first five months it wasn't selling at all. And, and, and it's been gone for three months and they're just now noticing it. So, you know, I don't think we should bring it back at all, e- even just because three or four people are demanding it. When it was in the store originally, it wasn't selling well at all. So you're going to have a couple of, of, uh, of items like that that don't move and, and just because you think they're a good product and they may be a good product, it doesn't mean that um, your your clients are going to love them as much as you do. Okay, thank you for that. I mean, that I think a lot of people like that's like just good advice all around. You know, if if it's, it's it sucks probably to create something that you're really proud of and then no one else sees that, but at the same time, it would also probably damage you a lot if you kept trying to push it and still no one wanted it. Yeah, years ago, there was this magazine called Food Arts. It was published in New York City, and it used to come out every month, and it was a great food magazine, and it was intended for professionals. And And I used to love, they used to do twice a year, they did, loved it, hated it. And it was all these chefs talking about the dishes that they loved creating that their clients either absolutely loved or hated. And... Uh, you know, you would, you would hear these stories and the chefs were mystified. They were like, I'm not sure why, but it, whatever market it was in, it didn't sell in that market, whether that chef was in Seattle or Portland or San Francisco. They, they tried forcing it down uh, the throats of their clients and no matter what they were going to do, um, they were never going to never enjoy it. And one of them was veal meatballs like in a squid sauce, like a black <laughs> squid ink sauce with pieces of octopus. And it was such a deep Catalonian dish that it was never going to work here in America. Not in a hundred years would it work. This was something that you would only eat if you're in Catalonia. And I remember one time I was in Spain, they tried feeding me tuna semen. I was in a place called Zahar de la Satun and they put tuna semen in front of me. And I thought, thought to myself, this is the best excuse for being a vegetarian I've ever had. This will get me out of eating this disgusting dish. But this is something that uh, when I started doing a little research into tuna semen, like only the Japanese were eating it. And this, these people in Spain that had to be part of this area called Zahar de la Satun because the entire industry was based on tuna fishing. That's why Zahara existed. It was to catch tuna and cook tuna and to sell tuna to the rest of Spain. And in this small restaurant where this guy only cooked tuna, he, he had put, brought out a dish of, of, of tuna semen and it was cooked on a plancha and um, it was uh, interesting to see. Uh, I, I opted for a green salad and let the people I was with eat it. 
And uh, they said it was delicious, but, uh, but you know, that would never work over here either. So, so a lot of times we experience stuff and I haven't had too many catastrophic dishes that were failures. I had one many, many years ago. That was a green apple dessert. Um, and I loved it and it had French gingerbread croutons on it and it was made with Szechuan peppercorns. And each time I sent one out, they all came back to the kitchen and the clients hated it. And uh, I thought, wow, I never, ever dared do it ever again. It left that much of a mark on me. So uh, taught me my lesson. Wow. That's that. that is awesome. In terms of like just every dessert going out and going, getting sent back. It, but it, I mean, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. Trust me. You know, I, it's something I felt was great. I was like, oh, I love French spice bread. I love green apple. I love Szechuan peppercorn. And I made a dessert out of it. And each time it went out, it got sent back. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it took me about seven attempts before I realized, okay, I don't need to go try this on, on three more people. Seven on seven attempts, seven returns, good enough for me to take it off the menu. So I took it off the menu immediately. Okay. That's awesome. Um, I'm sorry to hear that it didn't work out. It taught me a lesson, though. Yeah. Good. Uh, great. So, I mean, you know, we spent an hour talking about the cantalay. Um, is there anything that you'd like to let the audience know that you're working on, or I guess things that right now that are out and are you all selling chocolate boxes for the holidays? Like, yep. We're getting ready to go into Thanksgiving. We just sent the first Thanksgiving stuff up to, uh, the store this morning and we're, uh, creating a new line for Christmas. That's going to debut with photos on social media here pretty soon. Um, I have a new line of chocolate molds that I've created that are um, going past the first stage, which is the rendering. It's going into the uh, model stage next, and they're being made in Turkey, and they're going to hit America hopefully before Christmas. I'm going to be doing a little bit of blogging for the home cook on my social media. I'm going to be using some hobbyist molds. I'm going to be doing some things in my home kitchen and kind of break down the wall between professional and home cook. I have a lot of home cooks that follow me. And I'll be using uh, some compound chocolate so you don't have to temper it and some hobbyist molds that are made by a company in Buffalo called Making Mold. It's a sister company of Tom Rick. Awesome. And I'll be doing twice a month a couple posts uh, kind of geared towards the home cook to kind of um, break down that wall between professional and home cook. Because I think everybody's intimidated in tempering chocolate uh, at home. So uh, we know that. And so we're going to use uh, some compound and different flavors, different colors um, to kind of make some cutesy stuff for a uh, holiday season um, and that sort of thing. And then a couple more episodes of my TV show are coming out on YouTube. And hopefully we'll be filming more in the spring. But uh, yeah, keeping busy. Very, very busy here in uh, L.A. Weather's cooled down a little bit. LA still on fire. Store is still doing well. And we can ship all around America. Awesome. That sounds good. Yeah, I'm actually planning on getting some uh, real soon. I'll let you know what I end up ordering. Um, Let me know and I'll throw a little extra love in there for you, Ray. Thank you. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I hope we'll have you back on again for, I don't know. I mean, I think this is cool that we, we can spend the time to go over these uh, recipes. And I'm sure there's a lot more that you would want to talk about or that you have to share if you were willing to. But yeah, I'm very excited that we get to do this type of episode. Well, thank you very much. I, I love doing it too. And I think the single topic conversations are, 
uh, are really important to people because I think there's not enough. And again, like my experience with it was nobody had any information to share with me when I first started my journey with Canway to Bordeaux. So hopefully this conversation will help others out there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for having me, Ray. You be well. So there you have it, the episode with Chris Harvey. I hope you all enjoyed his story of mastering the cantalay. Uh, I think it's very insightful, and I really hope you all have something in your uh, careers in the food industry that you pursue so much and so well. Um, feel free to check out Chris's Instagram. Uh, he's got a lot of great stuff up there. And he's always, always, always teaching and sharing knowledge about his work, and he's always willing to ask and answer questions in the comments in terms of, like, you know, certain techniques or his thoughts on certain objects in the industry. And I just really think his Instagram is fascinating because it's really this open book of everything you might need to know if you wanted to become a pastry chef or if you're interested in chocolates or anything in between. He has it all there. So feel free to go check it out. Um, also, feel free to check out Ann Sons. They're releasing their new holiday uh, chocolate lineup. And I'm, no, I'm going to be sure to order some. This, this is not an ad, even though it sounds like it. Uh, but I do want to promote Chris because he is someone who's been very generous to come on the podcast twice. So feel free to go check that out. Um, all that stuff is linked in his Instagram. I really hope you all enjoyed this podcast, and we'll see you on the next Line Thoughts episode.